0: welcome to the podcast from Staza stable the stable master speaks my name is majella starrett
1: and my name is john starrett aka the stable master
0: Um, in this episode coming to you live from our mobile studio somewhere in kerry but not a car park this time um, we'll have a quick review of the feedback from the first episode announce the winners of our competition because you actually were all entered into a competition last week even though you didn't realize it um, for the most complimentary comments on our first podcast. We will review the stable gossip news and racing and then we'll move on to Coach's Corner where John will examine the marathon and why so many people get it wrong.
1: Yeah and but before we get cracking I just want to mention that uh, I posted on Instagram about that we'd recorded this one uh, about a week ago, which we had, but it went on for far too long and we ended up covering too many topics. So we're going to break those down into separate podcasts because it's still pretty interesting. Because uh, as I said, you know, it, it was a, a cracking podcast, but just way, way too long and all over the place. And then we tried to record it again on Sunday, but I was sick because I came down with COVID.
0: For the 10th time.
1: <laughs> well, it's probably man flu, really. But you can hear my horse voice there. You see that with a stable horse He's voice? He's been
0: having cold baths so he can sound sexy all, all week.
1: Yeah, like Barry White. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah, so um, but we're, we're giving it a good old lash now um, and we'll see how it goes.
0: Right then, let's start with the feedback. Um, First of all, we'd like to thank you very, very much for over 70 comments that we've had about the podcast. And all of it was very good and with some very good suggestions of how we can go forward and maybe make it a little bit better. So again, thank you most sincerely. Um, We decided to award three prizes of a month in Spain at John's Warm Weather Training Camp. Yep, that's right.
1: And uh, before I just announce the winners of that, um, so we've got three people there. There are a couple of other prizes as well. And I just want to mention a couple of comments. Uh, the first prize outside of the warm weather training camp goes to Nigel De Rosa in uh, australia nigel mentioned that this podcast would be um recorded from my swimming pool in spain uh, he's wrong the third podcast probably will because i'll be out in spain in a couple of weeks time for a month doing the warm weather training camp
0: i'll be home cutting the grass <laughs>
1: <laughs> however nigel just so you know we're going to fly you out to spain from australia for two days and you can be my uh, personal butler and you can serve me cocktails wearing a mankini while i record the um the podcast now I understand you're a size small is that correct let me know and we'll uh, send the mankini over to you mm-hmm. also uh just want to mention as well about Val Gabenda uh, who's won a prize outside of this too and this is what Val sent in he said uh, please tell Magella that she has a lovely voice and my lawn is quite overgrown in the back garden if she got any time on her hands could she come and cut it
0: I do Val and actually if anybody else out there Um, needs me to cut their grass Um, I work very cheaply and John doesn't really pay me very much at all for all of my input into the podcast, so I am looking for a third job. If anybody's interested.
1: So the subtext of that is that Magella's a cheap chick. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so good let's... value,
0: good value, not okay. cheap, good value.
1: Okay, that's true. Yeah. Um, so let's have a look at the winners of the, who, the, the the guys that have won the the month in Spain. So first off, Mark Watts. Carl Gloucester and Theodore Regan all win a month at the stable warm weather training camp in Spain. I'll send the details after the podcast. Uh, guys, you don't need to take the full month because I know you might not be able to. You can take a week, 10 days, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks. It's up to you guys, OK? But the top comment was from Theodore, who fancies himself as a bit of a writer. And this is his comment. Perfectly cromulent first episode. I like the Heaney riff at the end. And it's good to have Migella pricking the balloon of pomposity. Great stuff. But um, just given that Theodore uh, kind of fancies himself as a bit of a writer, I'm guessing that his parents had a particular penchant for the Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky, and that's why they named him Fyodor. Um, <laughs> but on Russian writing, just as a little aside here for Fyodor, um many years ago, before you were all born, I remember getting on a a bus in London to travel to Greece. And I think it took three or four days to get there. It was called The Magic Bus. There was nothing magic about it, it was horrendous. But when I went there, I took two books with me. One was War and Peace, and the other was The River Girl, a a narrative poem by Wendy Cope. And War and Peace was my introduction to Russian literature. I read a few pages and got absolutely bored and left it, but then moved on to the, The River Girl, um, by Wendy Cope and read it and it's a beautiful poem and I was sitting in the campsite one day at the bar in the middle of the afternoon ratted on retsina and in walks this woman she starts she saw the book and she started talking to me about the book and I was giving it all the big stuff saying oh yeah it's a load of sexist nonsense and it transpired that the woman that I was talking to was Wendy Cope, the poet who'd written the book. And, uh, Not
0: the first one when you pissed <laughs> off, I'm sure.
1: But then uh, we became pretty good friends after that and had a lot of chats about poetry. And we actually went to, if I remember rightly, we went to Rupert Brooke's grave, which was uh, Rupert Brooke, the First World War poet, was buried in Skiros. But coming back from uh, Skiros, I sort of thought I'd investigate Russian literature a little bit more and uh, so I got into a little bit of Chekhov and a bit of Dostoevsky, but Chekhov to me is a, a match for James Joyce on the short story. So anyway, that's a little riff there for Theodore, the Russian writer. Okay. Um, so anyway, let's get on with the the real events. So, uh, just to say, we'll have a quick look at the Stable News Roundup now, I, there's loads of results recently from the Stable News and you can check them all out and the race reports on the website stazastable.com, but the race reports are fantastic. But just to give you some of the really great results that have come in recently, we'll start off with Jan Tastic, who snaffled the course record by over five minutes, the win in the bling in the Glenmore 10. Then across the pond, we had Rachel Brewer who won the North Shore Classic Half Marathon 120. That's Rachel's first race in a long time. She'd been at injured, so she's come back. We had Mark Cox just ran 34 minutes for 10K to take six minutes off his 10K PB. He also recently took 31 minutes off his marathon PB to go sub three hours in 2.51. And in that same race, we had Carl Gloucester, who ran his first marathon in 2.45. I think it was off the top of my head, but he's only been running two years. And he also recently just knocked six minutes off his 10K PB to finish third in the Folkestone Coastal 10K, running 33.14. And then Magella's friend Val, hi Val, <laughs> walked 19 minutes off his marathon PB to go sub three and 256, and then uh, down under where Nigel De La Rosa is, the Mankini man, uh, we had Elise Beacombe who sliced eight minutes off her half marathon PB to run 124 and take third prize in that race. Um, And obviously, we've recently had the Cork Marathon in half, so we had some great results from there. Notably, Brenda Canty, who took eight minutes off her half-marathon time. Paula McHenney, 12 minutes off his marathon time to run 3.13. Jason Crosby popped seven minutes off his marathon time to go 3.14. Pordrick Sheehan, the old fella, ran a PB in the half-marathon, one twenty three, and he won the over-65s race as well. And then zipping across the pond again... DJ Jorf has just taken 13.20 off his half marathon PV, going 129.54. And we welcome DJ's wife, Laurel, to the stable she joined yesterday. So they're the big results, but the even bigger results are Darren O'Connor, who went sub three hours. He went from 3.41 to 2.55 slicing 46 minutes off his marathon pb now this feeds into what we're going to be talking about and also claire coleman who obliterated her 406 pb and ran 316 taking 50 minutes off her pb so like i said you can go to stazastable.com and look at the race results and uh, there are many many more there and the race reports and it's all entertaining stuff but i suppose we need to get stuck into the Mm -hmm. coaching corner the meat of it Mm
0: -hmm. so what are we going to be talking about today
1: john well, a lot of people uh, who sent in comments were asking you know if we could talk about the marathon, so I was thinking about the way to structure the podcast and I think the main thing that we want to get across to people is uh tips to help them that's what people want to know so rather than waffling on too much about my riffs in the, in lit, in the literary world mm-hmm. and my life let's talk about things that are going to help people and m- nearly everybody wants to know about the marathon now it's a big big topic so it could be like a four or five parts so I think in this part just to kick things off what we'll do is if we have a little look back to sort of like COVID time because I think that feeds in nicely so uh, from a coach's point of view um, Covid was fantastic because there weren't any races it meant we could periodize the training properly so we had you know we, we knew we had a, probably a, a good year to get some training done uninterrupted about racing um, and as a result of that if we look back to say September October last year when all the marathons came back on within the stable we had 105 people running marathons of those 105 97 ran PB's now the majority of those ran big pbs from 10 minutes to 1 hour the seven people who didn't run pbs there were a couple of reasons for it uh, like traveling from the us to the uk so jet lag a couple of people got covid a couple of people picked up little niggles and things like that and a couple of people just got their races wrong but generally you know a great result there with sort of 97 people out of 105 running huge pbs
0: and you think that was because of the COVID lockdown that led to all these
1: PBs. Not necessarily the COVID lockdown itself, but the fact that we were able to train for a year for the marathon. And that's basically how you should do it. Most people do two marathons a year, but really it should only be one marathon a year. But there are some caveats with that. Which are? Well, if we, I think what we need to do is we need to look at the different types of runner so you've got elites you've got sub elites you've got the club runner you've got the guy the person trying to break three hours for the marathon and then people running between four hours and three hours so i suppose if we look at each of those categories because each category would approach the marathon in different ways but let's start with the elite okay now within the elite how
0: would you define an elite first of all
1: okay yeah no yeah good good point so let's let's say This is going to be a bit contentious, but I know the people have different opinions of this, but this is how I see it. If we say the pinnacle of distance running is, I suppose, getting to the Olympics and world records. So the Olympic, the qualifying time for the men in the Olympics, I think is 2.11.30 off the top of my head and 2.29.30 for women. So if somebody is running those times, they're probably, you know, would be categorised as elite. However, we have to look at the elephant in the room and that's the shoes and the fueling.
0: Okay explain further.
1: Okay so everybody in the running world knows that the shoes give, give an advantage and a lot of the sports scientists and sports journalists are missing the fact that it's not just the shoes it's the mort and the fueling. So I'll just explain a little bit about that as well because it does sort of change or change I suppose the times compared to the past like five years ago. So everybody thinks that the shoes are taking about four minutes off but if you run just with the shoes, I, I think at the top end, at the very elite end, where we're talking Kipchoge and the guys who are running sub two five, you're looking with the shoes, I suppose, and with Morton as well, about one minute to two minutes is the, the difference compared to the old style, but the old fueling and the old shoes. When you're getting into the 2.10 to 11 category, the, the people that are qualifying for the Olympics, in the men's that is, are... Um, I think you're probably looking at about three or four minutes. So a 210 guy is really in old school or in old money, a 213, 214 guy. Um, And then I suppose if we go to that national standard and how do we define national standard? And I think really this is probably the best way to define an elite, somebody who's competing at national standard. Because if you're at national standard, you have the ability or the opportunity at least to qualify for the olympics so you're you're in there with everybody else and on that any given day you've got a chance and if we use the us olympic trials qualifying times as that benchmark so in the men that's 218 and in the women it's now 2 237 it's been moved down from 245 to 237 because of the shoes so many people qualified uh, in the last olympic trials they've, they've knocked a eight minutes off it and brought it down to 237 so that's pretty reasonable so i think that they're they're good benchmarks 218 and 237 for the women i think would qualify people as being an elite now within the elite structure you also have you, you you've got different tiers as well so right at the top end you've got the the world's best okay and as i mentioned there then you've got the 210 guys but just to put a bit of context on that an elite in Ireland, so if we look at the Irish, uh, the, the people from Ireland that qualified for the Olympics, we had three men, Steve Scullion, Kevin Seawood, Paul Pollock, and then in the women's we had Vanilla Britton and Aoife Cook. Now, if we go to the men first of all, if we, if we took any one of those men and plopped them into Kenya, would they be elite? No. So even if we give them their time, their 210 with their shoes and their drink, they'd, they'd be even struggling to be probably sub-elite in Kenya, and here's why. A 210 guy in Kenya is more like a club runner in Ireland or the UK. They wouldn't get the chance to get outside to race in the big races. They would struggle for sponsorship. They'd probably be living in a single room with an outdoor toilet and an outdoor shower. And they'd probably be milking cows and washing clothes to get enough money just to basically feed themselves. So, you know, that's just a, because at the moment there's a lot going on in Ireland and the UK about people wanting money for athletes who are competing at a national standard. And really, when you compare it across, you know, to other countries and things, should these people be getting Yeah, this but money? we're
0: actually talking about training right now and no our sponsorship deals yeah, or anything n- like no, that. No, you're right. I was just
1: putting a bit of context on uh-huh. what an elite is and work. But you're, you're right. So let's peel it back round again. So if we say 218 then is the benchmark for the sub-elite, uh, sorry, for the elite, so, a sub elite in my book is somebody that's running between 218 and 225 as a man, 237 to 244 ish as a woman. A club athlete or a good club runner for me is somebody who's running 225 to 230, bearing in mind the shoes. So, 230 is really like 234. So, that's a good club runner. And in the women's, sort of 247 to 252 in that area there. And then, of course, we've got everybody else trying to get under three hours, and then the people going from four hours down to three hours so they're the different categories mm-hmm. now that's important because each of those categories would approach the marathon in a different way and how they would uh you know compete over the year mm-hmm. so with an elite runner you would be looking at they might need to get the qualifying standard for the olympic trials then once they've got the, the qualifying standard they compete in the marathon and then if they're good enough Then they go off to the major championships so that could be three marathons within a year or within 18 months one every six months or so now because they do that it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way to do it equally a lot of elites will run two marathons a year one in the spring and one in the fall or the autumn and they do that because they want to try and win money and also they've got to have the exposure out there for you know on social media and the results to gain sponsorship as well Mm -hmm. okay Again, well, yeah,
0: I suppose they're like professionals, aren't they? That's what they do all the time.
1: Well, most of them are professionals, but there are some people that aren't professionals that, you know, they, they have jobs as well. And even back, you know, when I was younger and running and things as well, a lot of guys who are running 2.10 to eleven, two twelve were working. And a good example, as we mentioned earlier, say like Kevin Seaward, who's coached by the great coach over in the UK there, Andy Hobdall, Kevin uh, works as a vice principal or a principal of a school and paul pollock also coached by andy hobdell is a doctor so some people work and some people don't but yeah point taken there about you know they need to earn money but because they do that then everybody else is everybody else kind of follows that and that's what a, a lot of runners do wrong they look at what elites do and they try to copy what they're doing when really what they should be doing is looking at their own situation and trying to work out what's the best way for them to improve
0: so you think three marathons or two marathons a year is excessive for a non-elite person?
1: Absolutely, yeah. So, and that's where we, if we peel it back to the COVID situation, why it was so good? Because people weren't able to race, they were able to train properly and periodise their training. And that's why so many within our group in the stable made such big improvements. Um, and even at the elite level as well. So if you look at, say, Eva Cook, for example, going from 246 down to 232, and then qualifying for the Olympics as well, if he didn't over-race. So that's an example there. And the same with some of the other elites I've got in the group at the moment. Uh, The the Kenyan guys that I've got at the moment don't over-race either. And so if we come back round, say like to Darren, I don't think Darren's run a marathon in the last 18 months. You know, so he's been able to train and he's taken, what was it, 47 minutes off his PB, Patrick Lawrence, there's another guy who took nearly an hour off his PG, PB, Jamie McCarthy, nearly an hour off his PB as well. So is
0: your advice to just run one marathon a year then?
1: Yeah, that's the executive summary. One ma- one marathon a year, but you've also got to look at how to decide to run that marathon or when. So you have to say, do I want to run it in autumn or spring? Which are the main times when the marathons are? And you have to look at that and then say to yourself, OK, uh, do I prefer training in the winter, in the wind, in the cold, in the rain? Or do I prefer the summer when it might be a bit warmer and humid? Do I want to race in the early autumn or late autumn? Because again, the weather impacts how you're going to run, possibly. And the same in the spring. So there are things that you have to pick. So that's where you start. You pick where you think your best opportunity is for your best time. For me, I think late autumn's the best uh, for most runners in like Europe and I suppose in the US as well. Um, it means you, you, you're not training in inclement weather like wind and rain because one of the main jobs you have to do with your marathon training is to run at marathon pace. And what you're trying to do is teach the body to burn glycogen economically at marathon pace. If, it's, if you're trying to run in the wind and the rain, that's very difficult to do. So yes, you could put the same effort in, but you're not teaching the body to burn glycogen at marathon pace if you're running 20 seconds slower. So that's one of the problems you have maybe training in the winter. Uh, the other thing is as well is you have to factor in is family. So maybe people go on summer holidays for an extended period of time, would that interrupt their autumn, their, their autumn marathon training? And if so, how do you combat that and get around that and deal with that? And that's something that we'll talk about. And the same in winter, you've got Christmas and all of the festivities. Does that interrupt the pre-training going into the marathon? We like
0: the Christmas festivities, don't we, John? Yes, we do, we do. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, so so that,
1: that that's something to consider as well. But... Let's take, for example, somebody who's going to run... Say you, magellas let's say you're a free 30 marathon runner and you've <laughs> yeah, just, we'll you've just, sure. you just ran the Dublin marathon in free 30 and you're thinking, oh, I'd love to get under three hours. And that's what most people want to do who, who sort of are running at the moment, outside of the elite category. Um, what you would do there is you'd need to take... So we'll, we'll give a rough outline and then in the next episodes we'll go into a little bit more detail. But the rough outline for the preparation over the year would be something along these lines. You finish your marathon... You need take, to take a minimum of three weeks to recover. Uh, put, let me explain. You would need to take about a week to 10 days off of no running at all. And then probably a week and a half of just easy running, building back up to 65 minutes a day. And the reason for this is you might feel like after a few days that you've recovered, but you haven't. Neurologically, it takes three weeks to recover from a hard marathon. And if you try to come back before that, you'll probably find that when you're moving on in the year, you're gonna end up getting injured or getting stale and burnt out and won't perform very well. So I'd say three weeks, you know, for basic recovery, then a week to transition back into normal training. So if you ran the Dublin Marathon at the end of October, November is kind of recovery and transitioning back into training. And then sharpening up a little bit as well. And given that it's Christmas, is a good time as well because you don't want to be training too hard all year round. So December could be some light training, bringing you back into speed work and tempo runs. And without too much stress, if you miss the odd run here and there, you know, with Christmas as well, it doesn't put too much pressure on the family and stuff like that too. But once we get into the new year, that's the time to start getting the skates going. Now, what you really have to do is you have to focus on improving your your half marathon time. because the quicker you get over the half marathon, the faster you will be over the marathon if you do the training properly. Where a lot of people go wrong is they think they go down the scale and think I need to get quicker over 5K or 10K and then I'll be faster over the marathon. It doesn't work like that. It's more about your threshold, your half marathon sort of time and closing that with a marathon so the better way to work is to work towards improving your half marathon so january february march april may would be about improving your half marathon time and the reason why you should do that outside of the elite section so we're talking about people who are maybe a free 30 runner trying to break three hours mm-hmm. is most people in that sort of category there would probably be over 30 and probably possibly in their 40s and 50s as well mm-hmm. um And the safest way to train is in that area there where you're working around the threshold and just giving the odd session, like a 5K tickle, 10K tickle and then some structural runs. So you'd be focusing on what I call the endurance spine and the structural runs, which we'll talk about another time. So there'd be your long runs. Your session in the week, which would mainly be focusing on improving like your 10 mile half marathon in 10K without putting too much stress on the faster stuff. Because if you do, that's where the injury risk is. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that the injury risk is in high mileage. It isn't. If you progress mileage properly, it isn't necessarily a problem. If you go into the speed work and you're a little bit older, that's where the big risk is because the musculoskeletal system gets overstressed and you get injured and you also get burnt out as well. Mm-hmm. So that's one reason for, for sort of kind of targeting the half marathon area. Also the training is far more enjoyable. And if it's windy and raining through the January, February, March, April months, you're not having to try and do a 24 mile run with 18 miles at marathon pace. Your long run is probably going to be two hours. And if it's a horrendous day, you don't have to stress too much. You can drop the tempo maybe turn it into a fire leg session so whenever the wind's on your back or something like that you can pick up the pace and you're not losing fitness that way and that's a good way to do it to to work in there and to feed into there and that's exactly what the guys did in the group last year who ended up running all of the pbs in september and october this is what we focused on yeah. then after that we go into what i call the marathon bridge and again i'll expand on that in you know, the next episode, but the Marathon Bridge really is transitioning out of that half marathon, 10 mile, 10k type training and preparing you for going into the marathon training. Now, ideally, when you hit marathon training, you want to be fit. What a lot of people do is they say, oh, I'm going to do a 20 week build up for a marathon or a 16 week build up for a marathon and run myself into fitness. So they work on their speed and their endurance at the same time and progressing Mm -hmm. the mileage. Invariably what happens is they get injured, Mm -hmm. burnt out, stale because it's too long for most people to be concentrating on the on the marathon block of training Mm. so the better way to do it is is to start your marathon training with a half marathon race from that half marathon race about 12 weeks out from your marathon date you can almost tell within a minute what your marathon time is going to be all things being equal what you do you get your pace for your marathon your half marathon so if you ran your half marathon at say six minute mile pace or seven minute mile pace or eight minute mile pace just to make it easy to explain all you do is for the faster athlete so somebody who's sort of like already sub three hours you add 20 seconds onto your marathon onto your half marathon pace and that gives you your pace for your marathon so for,
0: six minutes 20 seconds yeah for some marathon mile
1: yeah that, that that's kind of what you'd be okay. you'd be doing if you run six if you run six minute mile pace for your half you're looking at 620 for your uh marathon pace if you run seven minute 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 miles for your half marathon you're looking probably at 720 to 725 if you run eight minute miles you're looking at about 825 pace okay so that's important because you carry that then into your marathon training so you're not trying to work out what your marathon pace is going to be and this is the problem when if you're working on speed and extending and trying to get faster during a marathon build up it all goes wrong if you know your pace already all you have to work on is extending and that means then you can work on the long reps and the structural run the marathon pace runs and then it all kind of knits together neatly so that four weeks out from your marathon date you're doing something along the lines of a two mile warm up 18 miles at marathon pace and a two mile cool down and then five weeks out you're probably doing something along three miles warm up 18 miles at 10 seconds slower the marathon pace and three mile cool down when you get those two sessions ticked off you're tapering the long run down into the marathon and you, you know you're going to hit the times because you'll have practiced all the fuel and have everything right and ready to go. So what we're doing there is- if, So it's
0: more of a marathon than a sprint then?
1: Well, of course, absolutely. Mm. Or even an ultra marathon if it's year after year. So, but what we're looking at really here is, is the more you get off the half marathon time each year, the more you get off your marathon time. So mm. if you do two marathons a year, you don't have the time to recover from the marathon, work on your half marathon speed, and then go into marathon training fit and improve. So invariably what happens with somebody who runs back-to-back marathons, a half say autumn, spring, autumn, spring, they they kind of stagnate. I've seen it so many times. So Mm -hmm. the guy might be running, uh, let's say somebody's run three hours and five minutes in in the springtime. So they think to themselves, okay, brilliant. I know I can break three hours in the autumn, but then they fail and they end up running maybe three, three. They just take a couple of minutes off because they rush back from their previous marathon And then they try to get a little bit quicker, but they haven't got enough time to get faster properly in a progressive structured way and hit marathon training already fit and ready to go again. So really they're just constantly running in and around the same pace. So if you think to yourself, if this applies to you, why are you not improving? You know, that you're doing marathon block after marathon block this is probably the reason why. You're probably getting injured, stale, burnt out, and not giving you enough time to get faster. Now by faster, remember, I don't mean over 5K and 10K. We mean the half marathon. There's no point, for most people in their 30s and 40s and 50s, trying to get faster over 5k, yes, you can. You can get a little bit quicker, but it won't necessarily translate into the marathon, and it will more than likely end up at you getting injured. Because what you're probably going to do if you do 5k training is you're going to do the 5k training that's based around Frank Orwell's multi pace training, which is too intense for people in their like who who come into running in their older age, rather than like school kids and uh, elite level sort of track runners. So, if you're doing sessions like eight times 1K, four times a mile, six times 800, 10 times 400, and you're in your mid 30s and older, it's not a good idea because you're putting your musculoskeletal system under an awful lot of stress and pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is one of the things a lot of coaches will give you sessions like that and will come at it from this idea. But a coach who comes from a physiotherapy or physical therapy background as well, will understand that this is not necessarily the best thing because they understand that putting the body under that stress and pressure isn't a good idea as you get older. Yes, you can do it, but the return of the training that you're putting in is diminishing. So Mm -hmm. you're better off working more comfortably enjoy the training work on the half marathon work on the threshold given the threshold a tickle and you can take in, in a year you can take seven to ten minutes off your half marathon time you know if you're running 130 there's no reason why you can't get from 130 down to 120 in the space of eight in, in the space of eight months we've done it loads of times within the group we've had people going from 142 to 122 in 10 months just by progressively structured training and that's without hammering out 10 times 400 and eight times 800 and eight times 1000 and things like that. So that's you know one of the key ways to do it. But we'll get stuck into the ins and outs of the training probably in the next episode where I will talk about another way to approach this. And this is the main way that I approach the marathon with most people is we start off with... Probably, I think, the best kept secret in the distance running world, which is the Super Superbase. Mm-hmm. So I talked to you about that. That's four months, then the Marathon Bridge, then the Marathon Specific Training. So in the next episode, mm-hmm. we'll go through all of those things.
0: Yeah, that makes I know very little about running, really, apart from what I've um, inadvertently picked up from listening <laughs> to you. <laughs> but that that really actually does make sense to me. Um, it does to, to take more... Um, Long term approach to it so you're you're building up gradually and you know you're not chucking the body into into pain <laughs> yeah well, well well, that's
1: it it's more sustainable really yeah. and more enjoyable you're not like battering away doing marathon training after marathon training the family's getting annoyed because you're always out doing long runs and you're t- you know like when I was training everybody in the house they would be go mad I'd be out for four hours doing a long run or something and come back and I'd be no good for anything I couldn't cut the grass or anything at all so <laughs> uh, and therefore that's how Magella ends up cutting the grass well, I was
0: cutting grass on before
1: that so but yeah just just a couple of uh, quick things as well um if you've got any comments you can drop us an email at staza stable nineteen sixty five at gmail dot com you can hit me on uh, instagram at staza underscore stable um you can even drop me a whatsapp message my phone number is plus three five three eight three four three five double six nine so drop me a whatsapp message if you want anything there and also we'll set up the links for doing like direct messaging on on the podcast and then of course there's the the website itself as well com. you know just drop us a message through there if there's anything if there's anything you want to talk about or want us to talk about then send mm-hmm. us a message and you know and we'll we'll, uh, we'll go for it from there anyway thanks for listening
0: yes thank you very much and Sadly, nobody wanted to hear about John running naked in the woods, so um, actually, they deliberately asked that we we not talk about that, so (laughs) sorry, John. (laughs) Well, actually,
1: in fairness, it's more to keep it more appropriate for you guys in terms of what you want to learn about running, and that's the idea, really. So. Yeah,
0: he was running very fast through the
1: woods. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Then. On the next episode, we'll go into a little bit of detail about the Super Base, the Marathon Bridge and the Marathon Specific Training. Uh, and that's really for the guys who are running sort of like between four hours and 2.30. You know, we'll, we'll break it down into those two segments. And then in the next episode, we'll look more at the Sub Elite and the Elite Marathon Training.
0: Yes, thank you very much for listening.
1: Yep, thank Take you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.